Good morning. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Hey, uh, this morning we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So you might want to find that. Uh, and as you're finding that, of course I've got to take an opportunity to fill you in on camp a little bit. It was fun for me to be able to sneak away from camp this morning and to be here at my own church. Don't hardly get to do that enough. Uh, so thank you for, for letting me be here this morning. Tell you what, stuff at camp is going crazy. We have got so many kids and so many families. It is just amazing. Uh, 2019 was our record summer with 3,250 kids. That was 2019, and then 2020 happened, and we'll just ignore 2020. Uh, although, although we ran camp right on through 2020, we had 2,000 kids there. But now the things are back on track. 2019 was the high water mark with 3,250. This summer, 2021, we are over 1,000 kids ahead of that. I have no idea how that is happening. I don't know where our registrar, well, I do know a little bit of where our registrar is fitting people. It, uh, uh, we, we actually keep kicking support staff out of their housing and putting kids in there. Uh, senior men, you've been out quite a bit and have, uh, have, you've stained thousands of square feet uh, of, of, of uh, siding, wood siding. That building, the inside is completely done, Ironwood. We got 40 kids and eight counselors in that building, and, and we're, we're still just packed. So thank you, seniors, for, for what you've done there. Uh, Brad Vyth, uh, Dan Vyth and Brad Solstead have been out building stairways in that building. Uh, Brad and Sherry Solstead, uh, they're actually out there this weekend for family camp in one of those rooms. We, we thought it'd be really good to test the stairs on them first. So they built them, you know, they're going to have to live with them. So, but thank you. Thank you, Lakewood, for, um, for all that you've done for camp. Uh, Rock Ridge is experiencing the same thing. Uh, we are just packed up there. In fact, I don't know that there's any room for any more trips, but uh, maybe there's a bed here or there if you get up to Ely. So stuff is good. God is blessing in so many ways, and I promise you that every single one of those kids, all 4,334, will hear about Jesus individually, not just from the speaker of the week, but individually their counselor will sit down with them and tell them about Jesus, and that's the most important thing. Yeah, <clears throat> that is the most important thing we do. 1 Corinthians 11, <clears throat> if you've looked at it, uh, you know that this is the chapter we usually turn to for communion services, and, and you're thinking, uh, uh, Herb, you're a little late to the party. I mean, that was last week. Yep, I, I know, I know. Um, I know we had communion last week, and Brent uh, did a beautiful job. If I wasn't able to be here last week, but I did hear the, the service online, and that was a great sermon. Just wonderful insights and uh, explanations of just all what's going on in that Last Supper experience. I, I, I really wish I'd preached that sermon, and probably will in the future. 
Now, our take this morning is going to be a little bit different. Uh, we're going to build on what, what Brent shared uh, last week and look a little more specifically about how to put into practice some of the things that, uh, that we find in this passage. Um, let's start by reading it. Uh, chapter 11, I'm going to start way up in, in verse 17. Paul says to this Corinthian church, he says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Boy, that's a lot of meetings I've been in. How about you? In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions amongst you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be some differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. And when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each one of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. And then the Verses that we probably have memorized. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and sick. And a number of you have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be contemned, condemned by the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not, be, not result in judgment. When I come, I'll give further instructions. If you're going to try and take notes this morning, which I realize when I preach, that's a task in and of itself. But if, if you want to point one, um, it's that arrogance takes many forms. Arrogance takes many forms. Now, what's happening on the ground here in this particular situation? You remember something that Brent shared last week, that the Lord's Supper what we call communion, was celebrated in the context of a meal, not what we've stripped it down to be. What we've stripped it down to be isn't any less spiritual. It's just not what the Corinthians would have recognized. Uh, I remember talking with a Jewish rabbi once, and he was upset with our comparison of, well, communion is sort of like Passover. And he was like, it's nothing like Passover. Passover, man, we eat and we sing and there's things that we recite back and forth. So what, what we've stripped it down to is, is not any less spiritual. It's just not something that the Corinthians or much of the early church 
would, would recognize. So what's going on? What is it that Paul is so frustrated with? Well, we read it in those early verses. In many ways, there's nothing but chaos going on. They're, they're coming. Some of them are, are just gluttons, and some of them are even getting drunk, and they're not waiting for each other. Some are left without and go hungry, and in verse 22, it says that that's humiliating to them. Picture a church potluck where everyone's bringing their portion of the meal, and, and, and we're all coming together, and, and those that got there early, and for some reason in this context, they seem to be those of, uh, of, of a higher means, okay, of, of more resource, that they're getting together and eating everything and socializing. And by the time the others, again, in this context, apparently of, of lesser means, maybe they had to walk, they didn't get a chariot ride or whatever, but somehow they're not able to get there right away. They get there late and the party is over. All the socializing is done. All they've got for the meal is whatever meager portion they were able to bring to it. Now, how is that arrogance? Well, I think apparently the others were thinking, you know what? You're not worth waiting for. You're not worth waiting for. Larry Gilbertson, after the first service, just told me one of the, the great Gilbertson jokes that, that he has. Uh, he says, you know, Herb, he said, arrogance is an illness that makes everyone else sick except the person who has it. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Such arrogance that, you know what? Yeah, you're, you're just not worth waiting for. Second point. There's lots of other problems in this church that I think are all underlined with that sense of arrogance. Now, you, you probably understand the Corinthian church that it's... Uh, you know, it's a church that has, a, well, they're a mess. They're a mess of a church. They got a ton of problems. And I think all of their problems kind of fall, or are the foundation of them is this arrogance. Go, go, go to chapter 1. Paul starts out right away condemning them for this arrogance. Chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought. My brother, some from Cleo's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul, and the other says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one could say that they were baptized into my name. You see, what's going on is there's this comparison of pedigrees. Oh, I agree with Peter. Oh, I like the way Paul puts things. I follow Apollos. I like David Jeremiah. I like Andy Stanley. 
No one is as good and faithful to the word as Chuck Swindoll. Oh, but Francis Chan has such fresh understanding of Scripture. Well, I think Herb has the best insights, said no one ever. (laughs) And then, of course, there's the conversation stopper. Oh, I follow Christ. Well, of course, that last statement is the only statement that makes any sense. But isn't it amazing how we can turn even that into an arrogant thing? Oh, I follow Jesus. And we put on our somber devotional tones. And I was sharing with a group of dads and sons last night around a campfire how Jesus needs to be part of, this is not in my notes, this is totally free, uh, of how we, you know, we goof off and have a lot of fun and then we stop and talk about God and we put on our somber devotional tones. And, and that's what these guys are doing. Well, follow who you want. I follow Christ. And we turn even that into a condemning statement. Now, we do this sort of thing to show off our pedigree. We like to look down our noses at others that are less astute than us. That's not what the church should be. I grew up at First Free Minneapolis. Great church. Oh, loved growing up there. It was a church that, that had a lot of men involved in ministry, and, uh, and us boys and us young men got to hang around them, and it was, it was just, oh, such a great foundation. And, 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 and one of the men that I remember there uh, was named Gordon Johnson. Some of you might even remember him. He's passed away now. Uh, Gordon was uh, uh, a pretty high official in 3M. Uh, he traveled the world. Uh, buying companies for 3M and, and, and reorganizing them. Many, many times, this is the context you may have met him in, many times he was chairman of the Evangelical Free Church of America National Conference. I mean, he was a big deal. He was a man of prestige and, and status. And yet us guys got to hang around him. And I remember him once saying, oh, Herb, I love church work days. Really? He said, I I love church work days uh, because I get to, do you hear that? I get to rub shoulders with carpenters and HVAC guys and mechanics and custodians. The church gives me an opportunity to do that. That's a whole different view of things, isn't it? I mean, he, like I said, he was a big deal. Oh, but I love being with these custodians and contractors and and HVAC guys because I learned so much from them and I get to hang out with them and I don't get to do that at work. Hmm. Paul reminds the Corinthians of their own humble beginnings. Still in chapter 1, like I said, right away in chapter 1, Paul starts uh, blasting them. Look at verse 26 of chapter 1. Brothers, Think of what you you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. 
so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Hmm. Paul was dealing with their pride and with their arrogance. Yeah, remember where you came from. And you know what? He then takes all of the chapters from, from that point to chapter 11 and pounds on them about their arrogance. Chapter 2, he says, look, I didn't come with any human wisdom, not trying to show you how smart and wise I am. Chapter 3, he goes back to the I'm of Apollos, I'm not of Paul, or I'm of Paul criticism. Chapter 4, he gives himself as an example of humility. humility. Chapter 5, he, he criticizes them for being such a progressive church that they brag about having a sexually immoral man in their midst. Chapter 6, he criticizes them for the arrogance of taking each other to court. Chapter 7, he criticizes them for seeking to gain higher status because of their freedom and their rights in Christ. Chapter 8, they're criticized for showing how spiritual they are by arguing over meat sacrifice to idol. Oh, I would never do that. Oh, it's okay if, oh yeah, but. Uh, chapter 9, he gives himself again as an example of humility. In chapter 10, Paul gives them examples from Israel's history of how arrogance got them into trouble. He ties it all back to arrogance. And then we finally get back to where we started, chapter 11. I guess point three is that arrogance can even show up in things that sound so spiritual on the surface. It's amazing where we can slip arrogance in. And I think when we slip them into these things that sound so spiritual on the surface, that's where we can get in the most trouble. Look back again at the the bottom half of the verses we started with, verse uh, 27 and 28 of chapter 11. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. Hmm. Be careful not to partake in this service in an unworthy manner. One of the things that I like to do when I'm trying to understand Scripture a little bit more, I mean, that sounds pretty straightforward. There's not a whole lot of question there. Well, maybe there is. Because what if I turned it around? Don't partake in this service in an unworthy manner. Well, how do I partake of it in a worthy manner? And this is where I think I've preached it wrongly. I mean, many times with a group of high schoolers or college kids out at camp, and we've had a communion service many times. I've, I've, I've heard that, you know, I've heard myself tell them, okay, you know what, guys, if there's some secret sin between you and Jesus... It'd be okay to let this cup pass until you go get that taken care of. I don't think that's biblical. 
I've often heard it said, I've said, you know what? Uh, if there's tension between you and a brother, maybe we should let this cup pass until you get that straightened out. And actually, I know that's not biblical. Uh, you'll find that passage in Matthew chapter 5. It has nothing to do with communion. It has everything to do with taking the offering. Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, uh, it says, uh, Therefore, it, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore, if any of you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. I have never, I have never heard a pastor say, Before we take the offering, if there's something between you and a brother, you should just let the plate pass. I do a lot of fundraising for camp, and i got to confess, I've never said that. I've suggested people add another zero on whatever number they wrote in the check, but I've never said, you know what, it'd be okay not to give. But that's what that passage is about. The reason I've come to that conclusion is because, like I said, if I turn it around... I think I run into the danger of saying, you know what, go take care of those things so that you are worthy to be part of this service. That doesn't ring true. So that I can come with my thumbs in my lapels and say, there, now I'm ready for the death of Jesus. That doesn't sound right. In fact, it sounds a little arrogant. So what's the answer? Well, after reading the chapters leading up to chapter 11, my simple understanding is that I need to come to the same conclusion about myself as Jesus did about me. That I'm a sinner. I'm a mess. I mean, I, I, I understand who I am in Christ. I understand that that's all gone, that I'm a new creation in Christ. I get that. But bottom line, I got nothing to bring. That's all Jesus, not me. I got to come to the conclusion about myself, the same conclusion that Jesus did, that I'm a sinner, that I'm a, a mess, and I am in desperate need of a Savior. Like Brent reminded us last week, I bring nothing to this service. I never was, and I still am not better than anyone else here. Brennan Manning, one of my favorite authors, uh, passed away a few years ago here now, not too long ago. Uh, Brennan Manning was a Catholic priest, but he wanted to get married. So he became an Episcopal priest. And he describes himself as an Episcopal priest with a great love of alcohol. He was a raging alcoholic. Uh, in fact, he came to Minneapolis to a, to a, uh, uh, a center for, for getting, getting uh, free of that. He was a raging alcoholic, and he tells a story. In fact, I think it happened in Minneapolis. He tells a story of being so dead drunk that he was literally lying in a gutter with vomit all over himself. 
And a mom and, and, and her child were walking down the, the sidewalk, and he heard the mother say, oh, stay away from that evil man. And he said, the only thought that was going through my head, lying there in the gutter, covered with my own vomit, the only thought going through my head was, Jesus loves me just as much now as when I'm preaching in the pulpit. There is nothing I can do to make Jesus love me more. That's a harsh realization to come to for some of us. Jesus doesn't love you more than he loves someone else because you've got such a great biblical pedigree. You understand so many things. Hmm. I never was, and I still am not better than anybody else. And I tell the high schoolers and college kids that I work with that if you can come to this conclusion that you desperately need a Savior, then don't let this cup or this bread pass. In fact, run to this table. Realize that you need this table. And when I realize this about myself, it's impossible for me to look down at you When I realize this about myself, it impacts all my relationships, and that might be the most important thing at all. I mean, how many meetings have you been in? Well, maybe even a, maybe even a few church business meetings. How many meetings have you been in where someone else is talking and you think, that's idiotic? <laughs> that's just stupid. How come you don't understand it the way I understand it? You know, because I've got so much better understanding. Oh, no, you got nothing. <laughs> you just uh, yesterday, I was in, in a meeting where we were sharing the, the next 10-year vision of Camp Shamina. It's kind of a fundraising thing. Oh, and we are showing people how, boy, uh, at the rate that we're growing and the trends look like in 10 years, we're going to double in size. This is crazy. In 10 years, 2031, I got to be able to have a thousand summer campers a week. That's ridiculous. And we put together this plan that we think is God ordained, that we think uh, this is how we're going to get to that point without feeling like a huge machine. And I'm sharing all of that and how, oh, the new dining hall will go up here because then it puts it closer to everything. We can span these directions and blah, blah, blah. And the current dining hall will get re, uh, remodeled into a retreat center. And there was one wonderful older lady there, bless her heart, you know, who been part of Shamanah forever and ever. And she was like, oh, oh, I don't know. To not have the dining hall here? I mean, it's such a beautiful view over the lake. And I got to confess, and I, I confess this to my shame, in my head was, oh, shut up. <laughs> there is no 12-year-old kid that is sitting in the dining hall going, what a beautiful view of the lake. No, they're snarfing down food, and they're like, oh, i got to get back outside because there's a whole bunch of fun stuff going on. And don't you understand that if we're going to expand, uh, and, and uh, we can only expand further away from the dining hall where we're asking people to come three times a day. Come on, this all makes sense. And I, I just had to check myself. In fact, I, I chuckled internally and just said, oh, Bloomquist, you are such an arrogant. 
you know, give her time. She loves Jesus just as much as you. And God will give us direction on how we're supposed to expand. And maybe she's right. Maybe I got to be a little more humble and think it through some more. When I realize about myself that I need Jesus, I'm no better than you, it affects all my relationships. And like I said, that might be the most important impact of all. When we realize this about ourselves, doctrinal debates fall to the side. I do not understand why you believe the eschatology that you do. I obviously understand it better, for crying out loud. <sighs> now, maybe I don't. When I realize the truth of the communion table, I realize that I can and should run to Jesus anytime and every time over and over again. And in fact, I can't wait to share the good news with you that you can run to him too. You don't have to get cleaned up first. Come now if you know you need a Savior. A good working definition of righteousness, at least for the kids that I work with, is perfection. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one perfect, not even one. And I've never had anyone argue with me about whether or not they were perfect. Never. Usually the answer I get is, well, you're not perfect either. And I get to respond with an enthusiastic, you're right. Both of us need a Savior. Let's go together. Yeah. We're both sinners and real messes, and together we can come to Jesus and have sweet fellowship around that table. And even though I've known Jesus for 57 years, I got nothing on you. There's nothing that I have that allows me to be arrogant about. All I can be is grateful. And true humility and gentleness will impact, and gratefulness will impact everything I do. Are you a sinner? Of course you are. Just like me. So let's run to that communion table together. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that it does not depend on me. And Father, I thank you that no matter how many times I try to clean myself up, and I thank you for the things that you have fixed in my life, but I recognize that that's all you. That's not me. Father, help us to bring that good news to others. That, hey, there is a Savior, there is a Redeemer, and He's the one that's worthy. And because of that, they, just like me, can run to you. Amen.